Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It's February the 22nd, uh, East. Uh, it's uh, afternoon on the West Coast, late afternoon on the East Coast. The markets have shut. And as always, or as always it seems um, these days, there's a lot of turbulence in the market. Uh, Bitcoin is down 10% after Elon Musk tweeted to his 50, almost 50 million Twitter followers that the price of Bitcoin seemed a little high, um, doing it very casually. Meanwhile, people are making and losing fortunes. Uh, the price of Bitcoin is astonishing. If you look at this, this is a five-year chart. For those people listening, you should watch. For those people watching, you see a very, very steep curve over five years for Bitcoin and a, and a similarly dramatic um, rise over a year. What does the Bitcoin madness suggest about what some people call the delusion of crowds in the financial market. One guy who knows all about this is my guest today. His name is William J. And he's the author indeed of a new book. He's an expert on finance and on the history of finance and on the history of the delusion of crowds. Uh, William J. Bernstein, fascinating book, uh, subtitled Why People Go Mad in Groups. Uh, Bill, is this madness with Bitcoin and Musk's involvement in it? Does this suggest, uh, is this, uh, is this uh, example A in your arguments about the delusion of crowds? It would seem to be. Uh, when you look at the history of finance, what you see is you uh, tend to see bubbles being blown when interest rates are very low. If you can only get you know, uh, some very tiny fraction of 1% by investing in short-term treasuries and other safe assets, then your money has to go looking elsewhere. And so when rates fall like this, you see money uh, draining away into places like Bitcoin and tech stocks. Uh, and, and so, you know, low rates are the fertile soil in which bubbles grow. And I think if Bitcoin... Uh, fits that description from any number of, of angles. The main thing is it's topic A now. It's a lot of what people are talking about when you go to a party, uh, when you when you meet people, meet people casually, you see people quitting perfectly good jobs to trade in assets like Bitcoin or to go onto the Robinhood platform. And so this, you know, walks like a duck and it's, you know, quacks like a duck and it uh, looks like a duck. So I think Bitcoin is certainly a bubble. Bill, you mentioned uh, Robin Hood, the uh, P2P platform for trading stock. Today, uh, Congress is holding committee meetings about uh, the, 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 the Robin Hood 
uh, incident uh, last month connected with uh, GameStop and the kind of, it seemed to me to be the rebellion of the crowd against Wall Street. Even today, GameStop uh, stock, sorry, GameStop stock jumps as, as, as somebody called Roaring Kitty, one of the very active investors, players on Robinhood, bought a lot of GameStop shares. Um, what does the GameStop Robin Hood story tell us? Is it a new chapter or is this an old game, if you like, in, in the delusion of financial crowds? Well, it's a very old story. You can see episodes like this going all the way back to the 1720s in Paris and in London. Uh, similar sorts of behavior when all people can can talk about when they meet is 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 this one subject, whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's it's GameStop. GameStop. Uh, and it, the GameStop story is is actually far more complex than history would would suggest. There's several different uh, narrative themes that run through this. One of them is the Robin Hood theme. It's the revenge of the little guy. Uh, that's a false narrative. Uh, I think that if that's what you believe, uh, then you know you must also devoutly believe in the Easter, the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy. Uh, it's true that some small players made a lot of money on this, but bigger players made. Uh, a much greater amount of money. For example, uh, Keith Gill, the famous Roaring Kitty, may have made at one point tens of millions of dollars on this, although that was when the price was, you know, in the hundreds of dollars per share. Now it's somewhere around $50 per share, so I suspect uh, it's uh, is, is uh, worth a lot less. Bill, for viewers and listeners who are not familiar with this story, explain what exactly happened. My reading is that a lot of small investors on platforms like Reddit uh, bought, invested in stock um, in companies like, uh, on the Robinhood uh, platform, uh, on for companies like uh, GameStop, which were rather previous generation companies, in order to take on the short sellers of Wall Street. That's the populist narrative. Is it true? It's true to a very small extent. Uh, they took on a relatively small number of the short sellers. Uh, in a way, they were like the predators who were picking out the weakest gazelles in the, uh, in the herd. Uh, there were a lot of other gazelles uh, that were a lot stronger and got away and made a lot more money. Uh, so Melvin Capital was the, was the weak gazelle, the sick gazelle in the herd. But the, a lot of the other gazelles were like a company called Senvest made an awful lot more money than the little guys who were operating on Robinhood. I get it. So basically what happened was that the little guys thought they were taking on Wall Street, but all they were doing was taking on Wall Street's uh, sickest company. They killed it, but everybody else made a lot more money, the larger Wall Street companies. Yeah, um, Melvin, Cap Mel Melvin Capital was was the sick gazelle that got picked off. Uh, but Senvest was, was if you will, the, the swiftest gazelle in the herd and ran, ran rings around the predators. So in a peculiar way, uh, this Robin Hood story is one of uh, multiple delusions of crowds. Is that fair? That everyone's essentially deluded except the real smart investors? 
yeah, I mean, there were certainly a lot of deluded players here. Uh, Keith Gill, Roaring Kid, he certainly wasn't deluded. He was a very smart guy who's very well trained, who knew exactly what he was doing. Um, but the people who were following him uh, probably uh, weren't operating at that level. Bill, your, your book, uh, this new book, The Delusion of Crowds, Why People Go Mad in Groups, um, is very much built off uh, the classic 19th century work on the delusion of crowds by Charles Mackay, uh, memoir um, uh, about poli uh, about uh, political uh, 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 memoirs of extraordinary popular delusions. Very briefly, what was Mackay arguing, and what's the need for your book if you're basically making the same argument? Well, Mackay was arguing that simply people go bonkers uh, in groups. As he famously said, they go mad in crowds and they slowly regain their, regain their sanity uh, one by one. Uh, the need for my book uh, is, first of all, to update a lot of the narratives and to bring them into the modern era to, to you know, when you read the Mackay book, uh, a lot of it seems like ancient history. Uh, and I wanted to give some current day examples. But I wrote the book for a much more important reason, which was that we now are aware of what the psychological wellsprings are of this sort of behavior, which Mackay couldn't know because the science of his era wasn't as well advanced. Great children's books open up new worlds for discovery. With Literati Kids, your child can explore uncharted places every month with spellbinding stories handpicked by experts. Literati Kids is a try-before-you-buy subscription book club. Each month, Literati delivers five vibrantly illustrated children's books, bringing the immersive magic of reading right to your home. Literati's age-based book clubs ensure appropriate reads for your budding bookworm, whether they're snuggling with you for story time or letting their imagination roam free. Each book bundle is thoughtfully tailored by education experts with five stories meant to spark new interests and nurture a healthy curiosity. No more sorting through hundreds of titles trying to guess what your child will cherish. Literati sends you the best in children's literature. Choose to purchase the ones they love and send the rest back for free. From art and adventure to tales of compassion, each Literati box follows a new enriching theme. With personalized extras like stickers, surprises, and special guest artwork. Each box is a fun and fresh adventure. Head to literati.com slash keenon for 25% off your first two orders. Select your child's book club and start them on a literary journey like no other. Literati.com slash Keenon is the only place to find 25% off your first two orders of this one-of-a-kind book subscription, the most joyful way to foster 
a lifelong love of learning. That's literati.com slash keenon. And my understanding of, 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 of your thinking behind the book is even though you're a, a, a financial, a very distinguished financial uh, analyst, uh, activist and author, you've written a couple of other books about economics, the birth of plenty and a splendid exchange. In many ways, you were driven to write this book because of both ISIS and QAnon. Is that fair? Well, not QAnon, uh, because I decided to write this book. Uh, uh, you know, several years ago, and QAnon wasn't around then. Its predecessors were just starting to get started. Uh, but I, the thing, the second trigger that, that that inspired me to write the book after, you know, reading Mackay's book 25 years ago was the ability of ISIS to attract tens of thousands of young people from around the world to one of the worst places on the planet. Uh, including from some of the world's most secure and prosperous societies. And I was, I, I wanted to explore how they were able to, to do that. Uh, ISIS is in the news again today. Uh, they're pressuring France to bring them home. Women who joined ISIS stage hunger strike. So clearly some people are still uh, on, on board the, the ISIS express. Uh, you wrote a piece, um, very recently, I think it's out today online, The View From Here, connecting ISIS and QAnon and the other contemporary madnesses that led to scenes like this and this in Washington, D.C. on on January the 6th. What are you arguing in The View From Here about the future of conspiracy groups like the Branch Davidians and QAnon? Well, what I focused on in that piece primarily uh, was an episode that occurred in the 19th century, which is fairly well known, uh, called The Great Disappointment. Um, Probably somewhere on the order of 100 or 200,000 Americans became convinced in the early 1840s that the world was going to end on a particular date. And after some missteps, they finally settled on October the 22nd of 1844. Uh, And when that day came and went, most of them fell away, but a smaller number of fanatics uh, became much more fanatical, they became much more zealous, and they doubled down in their belief system. And this is a well-described sequence of events when mass delusions get suddenly and abruptly disconfirmed. And exactly the same thing happened on Uh, the stroke of noon, at the stroke of noon on January 20th, when when Donald Trump didn't take the oath of office, when he didn't uh, reveal this vast pedophilic conspiracy of uh, liberal elites uh, and put them them in jail, uh, and when Joe Biden took the oath of office and their entire belief system got disconfirmed. Uh, And what you saw was very quickly most uh, of QAnon followers uh, realized that they'd been had, but a smaller number of them uh, doubled doubled down and doubled down on their belief system. And uh, what I did in that piece was I followed through what happened uh, after the 1844 Great Disappointment, which eventually led to the disaster, the Holocaust at Waco, and even the bombing of the Alfred P. Uh, Murrah Building uh, in Oklahoma City. And I think we're very possibly looking 
uh, at a similar sequence of events uh, that are going to occur. I think we're going to have to keep a very close eye, as I'm sure the federal authorities are doing, on the fragments of QAnon who are going to double down and become more fanatical. Are they really fragments, though, Bill? Um, QAnon, of course, remains reasonably popular. And Donald Trump, who is in some ways a, a, a mouthpiece or a symbol of QAnon, remains incredibly popular. He's about to speak at CPAC. He's, he's, he seems to have a pretty good chance of taking over the entire Republican Party. So I'm not sure I share your optimism. Um, are you 100% confident that this stuff's going to go away? Well, we're talking about concentric uh, layers, layers of the onion. Uh, you know, at the outer layers of the onion are the millions and millions of people, maybe the tens of millions of people, who believe that the uh, election was fraudulent. Uh, you're not going to, that's not going to go away, obviously. Uh, it may go away very, very slowly, uh, if, it, if at all. Uh, and that hasn't been disconfirmed, of course. You're never going to be able to disconfirm that in people's minds. But I'm talking about the hardcore QAnon believers. I'm not even talking about Mary Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm talking about the you know hundreds of thousands, if not a few million people, who really did believe in a vast pedophile um, uh, conspiracy. You know, people like Edgar uh, Welch, who put you know three uh, bullets into the um, uh, the ceiling of the Comet Ping Pong Pizza in Washington, D.C., just after the 2016 election. That, that belief system got disconfirmed. And the people who really did believe in that, most of them, I think, feel rather foolish now. Bill, in the age of COVID, are we living in a particularly conspiratorial time? We had the uh, MIT, uh, sorry, that's that's your book. We had the, uh, the MIT, um, uh, the MIT, uh, writer uh, Nicholas Christakis, the scientist on the show, who of course, who has a, a new bestseller, Apollo's Arrow, about the COVID, um, the COVID pandemic. But Christakis also wrote Connected, uh, one of the best books about our connected age. Um, is all this connectivity stoking, compounding the paranoia, the delusion of the crowd? Or is again, with your historical wisdom, your ability to make sense of the world, um, is this really no different from the past? Well, it's, it's very different from the past uh, in the sense that the vector of the virus uh, has become much more potent. And let me explain that, that analogy. I don't see a lot of difference between the COVID epidemic and the epidemic of conspiracy theories that we're seeing. All infectious diseases have an infectious agent, okay? Uh, you know, the virus uh, in terms of, of COVID or Yersinia pestis uh, in terms of the Black Death, uh, but they also have a vector, which is how the disease is spread. Uh, so, you know, with the Black Death, it was fleas and rats. With COVID, it's people coughing on each other. Uh, and with delusional narratives, the vector is the medium that they're transferred through. Uh, so, you know, starting with Gutenberg, when you started seeing uh, a rash of mass delusions that were spread via the printing press, uh, all the way to the present, when we see delusions, mass delusions being spread through social media. And social media is an enormously powerful vector. It's as if we've gone from a world where you've got a couple of people coughing and they're widely separated, and now they're in a tiny room and they're coughing on each other. 
Uh, and of course, you know, that's 4chan, that's Twitter, that's Facebook. Uh, Bill, I know you had said to me in a previous conversation that the dot-com boom of the 1990s was the, the biggest tulip scam you ever lived through. Uh, one of the best books on that, and if you've read it, it's by John Cassidy of The New Yorker, dot-con, dot-com, uh, dot the greatest story ever sold. Do you think that this Bitcoin mania will compete now? Is the market at a point that the dot-com mania was at in 1999? No, uh, I, I don't think that the market as a whole uh, is at that stage. There are you know, a lot of people out there uh, who are talking about Robinhood and Bitcoin and GameStop, uh, but the average person sitting on their 401k uh, and their individual retirement account really isn't getting involved in that. And I don't think it's even possible. In fact, I know it's not possible to have an IRA or a 401k uh, at, at Robinhood. So you don't see the degree of mania. I remember the, the late 90s very clearly. And I, I remember just about everybody I knew talking about people they knew that had gotten rich investing in tech stocks. And there was a narrative out there that getting rich was the easiest thing in the world. All you had to do if you weren't investing in tech stocks was to put money into an S&P 500 index fund and you were going to become rich as as Croesus. And if you disagreed with those people, yeah. they would get they, they would get really they would get really angry at you. Did you get and I'm not seeing that now. Ever seduced, Bill, you seem a hard guy to seduce, hard headed financial expert steeped in the history of uh delusional financial crowd events. Was there ever a moment in the 90s where you thought this was for real? Well, it, what I thought is, is out there for everyone to see, because in the year 2000, I wrote a book called The Intelligent Asset Allocator, and I talked about the tech stock scene uh, at that point. Uh, and uh, McGraw-Hill very generously allowed me to post that along with uh, the publication of this book. Uh, I would give myself somewhere between a B and a B plus. Uh, I was reasonably convinced that it was a bubble, but like most people observing it, I wasn't entirely sure. Uh, Bill, I, I take your point about Bitcoin still being reasonably marginalized, but MasterCard, PayPal, they're all now involved in a, in a race to incorporate uh, P2P currencies in, 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 in their financial platforms and products. Janet Yellen uh, today made a, a speech about the, the extreme inefficiency uh, of Bitcoin. Um, what can we learn in terms of the wisdom of the crowd about GameStop and Reddit uh, to make, to incorporate Bitcoin and blockchain into the financial system? I think you have to separate those two things. Uh, blockchain technology may very well uh, be a revolutionary technology uh, that will that will greatly increase uh, financial efficiency and improve people's uh, financial lives. But it's not going to involve Bitcoin. Uh, there, are, I'm not going to bore the audience with you know the six or seven different characteristics of money. But Bitcoin really doesn't fulfill or meet any of those criteria. Could it be another of the digital currencies? Could it be Ethereum or, or one that we, we don't know of yet? 
No, it'll be a state currency uh, because the primary characteristic of, of money is that it has to be a stable source, a stable source of value. Uh, and Bitcoin is anything but a stable source of, of value. It has to be solid ground you can stand on. Uh, and, you know, the price of Bitcoin is a Richter 8 earthquake. Is this a rather polite way of William Jane Bernstein telling the world to sell their Bitcoins? Uh, not necessarily. What I guess what I'm telling people is not to get carried away with it. Um, you know, if you want to uh, invest a tiny portion of your portfolio in it, be my guest, but I'm not going to be joining you. So there really is no new economy, Bill. There never has been and there never will be. Uh, no, there, there are lots of new economies. The economy changes all the time. It's just that it's very hard to identify the people who are going to benefit uh, from that. I mean, our eye settles, for example, if you think about the, uh, the dot-com companies, our eye settles on, you know, Amazon, uh, for example. Uh, but Amazon was one of, you know, a couple thousand companies, uh, most of which got listed, by the way, in John Cassidy's wonderful book that you just, you just held up. Uh, and, and, you know, had you invested in all of those companies, you really wouldn't have done all that well. Uh, in the long term. So who should we trust, Bill? Um, is it experts, quote unquote, like Philip E. Tetler, the author of Super Forecasting? Uh, is it cynical or skeptical journalists like uh, John Cassidy? Or do we really have to go back to Charles Mackay? Is he ultimately the authority when it comes to making sense of this insanity? Well, like all complex subjects, you have to uh, consider all sources. Now, for example, what Tetlock will tell you is that it's very hard to make forecasts more than a year or two uh, in advance. So that's what I would take from him. Uh, what I would take from uh, Mackay is simply the historical knowledge that people uh, go bonkers in groups from time to time. It's happened before, it's happening now, and it will certainly happen in the future. What I would take from the Cassidy book is something that's somewhat different. Um, Cassidy got a lot of things right, and it's a wonderful reference, the book is a wonderful reference source, but scattered throughout the book is his disdain for the very concepts that the people who were selling the new economy back in the uh, late 1990s uh, we're saying he, you know, he, he tuts huts in the book. My God, imagine that, you know, we're going to not be shopping in stores anymore. We're going to be buying everything online. Uh, you know, isn't it silly to think we're going to have, uh, you know, free video conferencing uh, and be able to, you know, make hotel reservations across the globe? Uh, and in fact, he was dead wrong about that. What he was right about was that it was silly to invest in the companies that were that were trying to do that. Uh, because those weren't the companies that eventually prospered. Perhaps we should trust, rather than um, John Cassidy, his New Yorker colleague, James Surowiecki, who also wrote a classic, The Wisdom of Crowds, also inspired by the Mackay book. I know you're a big admirer of Surowiecki's book. Um, what is it that Surowiecki gets right? Well, Surowiecki gets almost everything right, uh, and the only quibble I have with his book is that it's not titled properly. He's not talking about crowds. 
what he's talking about is the is the aggregated judgment of independent individuals who generally aren't talking to each other and interacting with each other. Uh, the, 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 the very wise groups of people who he's describing are anything but a crowd. And the best example I can think of this is a, a funny little experiment that was done in a Harlem classroom by a uh, by an investment manager named Joel Greenblatt, and he performed the classic John Galton experiment, which is he got a jar of jelly beans, uh, and he asked the class, the kids in the class, to estimate the number of jelly beans, which turned out to be seventeen hundred and seventy-six. And just as with the Galton experiment with the weight of the ox, where where this large group of people correctly guessed the weight of the ox to within a few pounds, the average guess of that classroom came very close, very, very close to 1776. And then he said, okay, let's go and have all of you guys. And the moment that they started describing how they arrived at their number, and then they reassessed what they thought, the, 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 the number that they came up with was somewhere in the range of five or 600 jelly beans. So it was wildly inaccurate. And it was just a wonderful demonstration of how when you destroy independence of judgment and have people gather into a crowd, uh, their, their judgment heads south. Well, there's a lot to read. Uh, you've got to read William J. Bernstein's new book, The Delusion of Crowds. And if you haven't read the Surueki and the Cassidy and the Mackay text, those are essential reading too. Um, Bill, uh, Bitcoin is at $53,500. If it's at $100,000 at the end of the year, will you come back on the show and eat your hat? Uh, You can, maybe not 100,000, but if it gets to 500,000, you can ask me whether I want mine with sriracha sauce or, or honey glaze. Or you'll take your clothes off. Well, I maybe I maybe I'll eat crow. Yeah. <laughs> well, William J. Bernstein, wonderful conversation as always. Great new book, The Delusion of Crowds: Why People Go Mad in Groups. One of the sanest men around. One of the few voices of sanity in our age of insanity. Congratulations on the book, and I will look forward to having you back on the show in the not too distant future to eat your hat and take your clothes off. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.